Okay, Joshua, chapter 11. I'm actually going to try and go from chapter 11 through 16. Now, <laughs> oh, I got to go now. Uh, <laughs> Anybody need some coffee? <laughs> you know, we're going to get into a few chapters that deal with basically how they divvy up the land. And we're not going to go into the detail of this person. And also they talk about 31 kings that are conquered and mentions each of them by name. So we're not going to read through everything, but we're going to try and get through that. We'll see. There's a few things I want to point out or spend some time on more than others, but we'll see how far we get. But just so you know, we are going to be kind of blazing through a few of these chapters here. But chapter 11, we're going to spend a little bit of time on. It starts in verse 1, when Jabeb, king of Hazor, heard of this. Heard of this means the conquest that just taken place uh, from the southern cities. We talked about that last time, how Joshua had basically divided the region and took over the south. Now we're talking about the northern Area. So when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this southern conquest, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Ashraf, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains in the Arabah, south of this other place, in the western foothills, and the Napoth door on the west. I know you guys are probably going, well, means nothing to me. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it means something to you. They're just a lot of names to the northern areas. To the Canaanites in the east and to the west, and the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mespah, they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand of the seashore, all the kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Miram, Miram to fight against Israel. Now, this is a, all these kings and all these names comes to this picture where you see them. The mention of horses and chariots is significant because that is the, the A1 tank of the day. I mean, this is... This is as powerful as you get in military terms at this time. This is them showing their forces and all these kings gather together and it says they were as numerous as the sands of the sea. So imagine this coalition of forces that gathers at the waters of Miram, which we know is the, the valley of Geth, or the, um, I'm blanking out. The last in Revelation, it talks about this. Yeah, Megiddo. It's Armageddon, basically, the Valley of Megiddo. So it's talking about that valley, which is interesting. There's there's a lot of parallels in Joshua to Revelation. We're not going to get a whole lot into them because they're real speculative. And really, going through these chapters, I had to fight against just trying to find things, and a lot of it ends up being speculative. And I don't want to get too speculative. Some of it's interesting, but anyway, all these people gather against Joshua in the valley of what will be Armageddon. Interesting, you know, Joshua being the name Jesus for us. So there's some interesting parallels. But as they are gathered there, again we hear the Lord tell Joshua in verse 6, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel's slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So, God once again tells Joshua, don't be afraid. And 
you would think, well, all these victories that they've had, they've had the victory at Jericho, Ai, they've taken over the, the southern region, God dropped down these stones from heaven, what stopped the sun, what more, why would you dare be afraid? But again, imagine seeing a multitude of people with horses and chariots waiting for you. You're gonna be afraid. It's natural. We all fear. And even when you have faith, it doesn't mean the absence of fear, but what it means is the resolve in spite of it. And it's important for us to understand that because so many times we wonder, well, why am I afraid? Well, because there's a million people out there trying to kill you. You should be afraid. But in spite of that fear, have faith. And so when he says, don't be afraid, don't let your fear control you. Yeah, you're afraid to see all these people, but recognize in spite of that feeling, in spite of that fear, that I am going to deliver you and have faith. And so faith doesn't automatically mean there will not be the sense of fear, but it will mean that you will not be paralyzed by it and will act in spite of it. There's a lot of areas in our lives where we might be afraid, but we still need to move forward in we still need to believe God. We still need to trust God, even though we have that sense, that feeling. Don't let fear paralyze you. And so this is the last time that we actually see the Lord telling Joshua, don't be afraid. But he tells them every time they encounter a battle, which I think is interesting. He didn't just tell them once. He tells them over and over and over again. God tells us over and and over and over again, don't be afraid. Trust in me. Have you guys noticed that? Do you ever feel like, man, why am I so faithless? Why does God always have to reassure me and encourage me? Man, I, you'd think I would get it by now. You're in good company. Joshua had to be told over and over and over again, don't be afraid. Of course, he had good reason. You know, This isn't just, you know, well, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, buy those new shoes, you know, I mean, it's like, th this is serious. He's got a multitude, an army that's waiting to destroy him. And you've got to imagine, I mean, I, I just, these pictures, I love them. This is why I like movies like The Gladiator, you know, and Braveheart. I just see all these forces against there and it's dark and they've got the torches and you see the shadow and the horses breathing, you know, and it's just this powerful moment. And that's what the Lord speaks into, is that place when he needs it. And the Lord speaks into our lives at those areas when we need it. It's interesting here that horses are mentioned and the idea of hamstringing the horses means to make them so they're not able to battle anymore and to destroy the chariots. Now, why wouldn't you take those over? Horses are powerful animals. Why wouldn't you just take the horses and why wouldn't you keep the chariots, you know, paint your logo on them and now they're the Israeli chariots and we'll, we'll take these things over. It's interesting because horses at one time, I mean at this time were again very powerful, but they were also a big part of Egyptian worship. Ra, the sun god of Egypt, was worshipped with horses. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Verses 14 to 17, it says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, which is what we're reading about, and possess it and dwell in it, 
and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. So there is a connection to Egypt where the horses were raised, many of them that were bringing them back. And there was a connection again to their worship. And God was saying not to do that. He said, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now, if you know the story of David and Solomon, especially, you know that they failed in these areas. Solomon had a thousand horses. They uncovered archaeologically these stables that were just massive for horses. He also had a thousand wives. You're not supposed to multiply wives. He did. This is one of the downfalls that we see of establishing a king that God warned them about. But they did. And so God tells them not to do that. Now there's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 20, verse 7. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. The power of horses and chariots that it re represented, God says, don't trust in them. Trust in me. Bless you. And what a, a picture that is for us, because we tend to put our confidence and our trust in the things that we see, it's on, in that job. You know, if I get a secure job, I will trust in that job. And there is no job, as we've talked about before, that is secure. There is no place, I mean, a whole Russia fell and what, how all of a sudden, boy, where's Russia go? You're talking a nation can fall. What are you going to trust in? Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. And so once again, we see God is telling Joshua, trust in me. He tells them, don't be afraid. And so, verse 7, it says, So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom, again, the valley of Megiddo, attacked them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them. They pursued them all the way to the greater Sidon, to Mesopoth, Miam, and to the valley of Mespah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. And so he did do what God had told them to do and fulfilled what God had called them to do. Uh, Joshua took all the, these royal cities, their kings, and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazar, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock to these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed, as the Lord commanded his servant Moses. So Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Wow, what a powerful verse. He left nothing undone that the Lord commanded Moses. In other words, he fulfilled what God told Moses to do and fulfill Joshua completed it. He did it. And what a great thing to be able to say and to look in our lives and wonder, did we complete everything that the Lord commanded us to do? 
Did we do it? Or did we leave something undone? And it's important to recognize just the importance of faithfulness in these things. In verse 18, it says, Joshua waged war against all the kings for a long time. This took place for seven years. The whole battle that they're talking about here, it was a total of seven years battle. Again, you can equate there's seven years in Revelation, a tribulation period before there's finally brought peace. There's these kinds of equations that are there and similar in what took place here and what we see and read in the book of Revelation. In verse 19, it reads that except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, this is what we read back about the Gibeonites, they're the only ones who made a treaty of peace with the nation of Israel. Everyone else was on the outskirts of them. They were not part of this. One of the things it says for it was verse 20, it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. We talked about this a few weeks back about how the Lord tells us in Genesis that the time of the Amorites, the, the fullness of their iniquity had not yet come. And he gave them 400 years for this iniquity to be full before God sent them in to wipe them out. We talked about the evil that takes place in, in the societies even that we know of. We talk about the butchering of people, the innocents, children that were sacrificed, that they found burned alive at this time and in this culture. And so we, we know it was just a horrific culture that was there at this time. And when God told them to go in and wipe them out, it was after 400 years of allowing them to to go their own way. And when it talks about the Lord hardening their hearts, it, it's him strengthening their position. And I think we've all seen this. Have you ever seen someone and you think, you have to have hit bottom by now. This has to be it. And at what seems like the bottom of the bottom, they might be living in the gutter, have no food, have no shelter just be strung out, whatever it is, and you think, okay, you've hit bottom now. Would you turn to God and change your life? And they say, no, I don't need to change. And you think, oh my gosh, what's it going to take? And the truth is, for some people, there is nothing that can change. There is nothing that will change them. And that's a terrifying thing to think about, that there are some people who will not change. And God himself cannot change them. And so what he does is strengthen them in their position and uses them to further his purposes because they will not change. Now when I say God himself cannot change them, it is because God has given us all that freedom to choose. And the freedom to choose is a powerful thing. It's, it's funny to me how people who accuse God, if God is so good and so just, then why is there evil in the world? And you say, okay, you win. There is no God. Now why is there evil in this world? Well, it's because we choose it, which is what the scriptures declare. God gives us the freedom to choose. Well, that's not fair, and the people then fight against God because he gives us the freedom that they want to enjoy. And so you can't have your cake and eat it too. God gives us freedom, but then we are accountable 
for that freedom that he gives us. And so after 400 years of their freedom leading to iniquity that was full, God says, go in there and wipe them out. And so they go in there, they wipe them out, take them all over. In verse 21, it says, at that, at that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country from Hebron. The Anakites is a name we're going to see that takes place a few places here. Goliath was from this tribe. They weren't actually Philistines, but the Philistines brought him in, and he was from the lineage of Anakin. And something about the Anak Anakin, what are they called? The Anakites, they're big. They're large people. And they're known for that. Goliath was about nine feet tall or so. Big dude. And so they are known for this. And so that's why they are given special mention here in this time that Joshua took them over as well. The Anna. Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron to Beer, Anab from all the hill country, Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did the, they survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. And so we see that Joshua takes over the strongholds of the land. We see that there are different pockets of people who scatter different places, including the Anakites that go into different regions. And, and now as he's going to distribute the land, it's going to be up to each tribe to take that land and to occupy it, to make it their own. It's up to them, but at this point, they have rest from war. The big battle, the big war is over after seven years. Finally, there is rest. Again, after seven years, we know in Revelation there's going to be tribulation and then the Lord is going to come and restore his kingdom. And so there is again a picture here. Now, rest is interesting because God has given us rest. But the rest is found in Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He was done. He was completed with that. He had finished the work that he had sent, was accomplished to do. He had satisfied God's need for justice. He had sheathed the sword. He was done. Jesus, when he said, it is finished, he was able to sit and rest. And, and it's important for us to recognize that because we are to enter into that rest that Jesus offers. Later on in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, it says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall from following their example of disobedience. The demands of God's justice have been satisfied because of Jesus. And so we are able to enter into his rest. 
Just as Joshua rested from the war, we enter into the rest when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. We no longer have to fight to be right with God. Jesus has satisfied that. What we do is put our trust in what Jesus has done and not have to earn it, not have to strive for it. We simply receive it. And so this rest is, again, a significant thing because as they rested from war, we need to cease from our working and striving. Even as Ephesians 2, 6 says, we need to recognize that we are raised up with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. Why? Because of what he's done. That's our position. We have one where we rest in what Jesus has done. And the book of Hebrews talks about that. It talks about that better thing that Jesus has done. Chapter 12, just want to touch a couple of things in chapter 12. Verses 1 through 6, he's talking about the conquest that was under Moses. The things, and the, he talks about the inheritance of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The conquest that took place on the eastern side of Jordan. And so he talks about that in those six verses. And then in verses 7 through 20, he talks about the conquest under Joshua. And he gives the total of 31 kings in all. And so we see that in verse 24, the king of Tirzah, the last one. And I know it would be a lot of fun for you guys to hear me try and mention all these kings by name. But I'm not going to embarrass myself and do it. And so it ended up in saying there were 31 kings in all. And what I think is interesting is we have this short portion that talks about the, the kings and the enemy that Moses took over, and then we have this large list that Joshua did. It's, I, I think it's interesting on, for a couple of reasons. One reason I think it's funny is because Joshua is writing this. <laughs> Moses took these guys over, and here's what we did. And he lists them all out. He took it, because it's funny, because it says, you know, what is the territory? The, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, one. And he lists says one out of all, but he has to say it 31 times. But another thing that is more, I think, I don't know, significant, is that Moses, that represents the law, could only do so much. Joshua, who represents Jesus, was needed to fulfill it. The law could only get you so far. It could only take you to the Jordan River, to the promise, but it took Jesus to take us into the promise and to bring the total victory. And I think that is more significant as we look at the relationship between what Moses and the law was able to do and what Joshua and what Jesus, our Joshua, is able to do. Romans 5.20, it says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And we see that's what's taking place with us, and we see that that victory increased all the more as Joshua entered into the land. Um, Another thing that is interesting about this list of kings is their city is mentioned, but their name isn't. We don't see any of the king's names. Now, these are kings. These are people of prominence and importance. We have no idea who they are. And it just makes you think, what do we think is prominent and what do we think is important? 
because it won't be very long before it's not. Ask MC Hammer. You know, he was too legit to quit. Didn't matter. It quit him. Ended up ha claiming bankruptcy and, you know, person who was on top of the world, you know, where is he now? And it just goes to show, you know, what is prominent in our eyes and what is prominent in God's eyes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the one who does the will of God will abide forever, First John tells us, chapter 2. And so we're not to love the, the things of this world, the prestige. We're not to try and strive and make a name for ourselves. If I, I want to be king. Yeah. Well, join the 31 who are kings. Who are they? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know any of their names. They're just gone. And a powerful lesson for us to just recognize what lasts. The things of God last. And, and everything else, it's, it's shifting sand. It just gives way. And so, chapter 13, we talked about this again Sunday. When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, you are very old. <laughs> I like the King James. It says, when Joshua was old and stricken in years, God told him, you're old and stricken in years. <laughs> Joshua at this point is about 90 years old. And I think it's interesting because as he goes on, and he says, the Lord said to him, you are very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. As we talked about Sunday, this is not a contradiction that says they conquered the land and rested. This is talking about all those regions where the people scattered to that had not yet been occupied. There were still a lot of battles that still needed to be won and the people had not yet taken those battles and occupied to the fullest. But one of the things that I, I think is interesting is you know, coming to the end, you realize all the things still left to be done. As I'm getting older now, I see my life in a different way than I did when I was just a young pup. When I was in my 20s and had the world before me and, you know, didn't have these cares. Now I'm 50 years old and I'm thinking, I don't have a lot of time to accomplish the things I'd like to see done. That time's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And so now Joshua, when he's old, God says, there's still a lot that needs to be done. Why is he telling him this? Because you're getting old. Because you need to be aware as your time goes on how valuable that time is and make the most of that. In verses 1 through 6, he gives areas that were yet unpossessed and and. He tells them these things because he's telling them these things still need to be done. And you're getting at a place where you're not going to be able to do it. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit is, again, designating areas of our lives that are yet unpossessed, an inheritance that we have yet to receive. Like I said, now that I'm older, I think, what haven't I done that I should have done? I never used to think that way. I didn't... didn't enter my mind. I wasn't like, oh, what, I, what areas do I need to occupy? I was just living my life. And now that I'm coming past the halfway point, 
you know, unless I live to be 101, I, I need to start thinking, well, what do I need to do? What areas have I not inhabited? What things have I not conquered? What, what areas of my life still does the Holy Spirit need to do work in and occupy and move me forward? Um, again, what the land was to Israel, Christ is to us. And what they didn't occupy, what areas did Christ have for me that I still need to occupy or that he needs to occupy in my own life? And, and it's an important thing to recognize and to think about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Your life is a race. You have to run if you want to win. Philippians, he says something similar. He says, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I am straining forward. I am pressing on to win the prize. What is the prize? Well, it's the inheritance we have in Jesus. It is living the life that is occupied with Jesus. And it doesn't mean you are on a mission field. It doesn't mean you are in full-time ministry. It means that Christ occupies your life fully. That as you live, you live for him. Whether it's how you raise your children, whether it's how you work, whether whatever it is you do, do unto the glory of God. That God is honored with your life. It can be in music, it can be in sports, it can be in art, it can be in construction. God can be honored through you if you live for him. And so Paul has these pictures of pushing forward of a race and not coming short, not falling short of the things that God has for us. And verse 15, chapter 13, verse 15 See, I told you we'd get through these chapters. This is what Moses had given to the tribes of Reuben, clan by clan. And we see verses 6 through 15, or excuse me, 15 through 30, we see uh, what he gives to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And this goes back to the east portion of Jordan. Before they crossed the line, of the Jordan River, they said, Moses, we like it here. Let us live here. And Moses said, okay, but you first have to go into the land, help your brothers conquer the land. After they get settled, you can come back. And so now what's going to be taking place as we see the portions of land being distributed, and, and imagine, this is really important to them. I know to us, it's like, who are these names? Where are we going? But if this is going to be your homestead, you want to know where the boundaries are. You want to know what is yours, who it belongs to. And so he starts distributing these things, and he says to Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, theirs is on the east side of the Jordan. And so verses 15 through 30, he talks about that region of land that is given to them. Now, it's interesting to notice that those two and a half tribes got taken over, got absorbed in to the land. 
did not follow after the Lord. They did not enter into the promise. Again, a picture for us. A lot of us want, well, you know, it's, it's enough for me just to, to know about God. I believe in God, but we never into, enter into the promise of God and we find our lives fall. We falter and, and we never receive what God has. It's definitely a picture for them. In verse 33, chapter 13, we see it says, let's read verse 32. This is the inheritance Moses had given when he was in the plains of Moab across the Jordan east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he promised them. I'm going to talk about this more fully on Sunday, about what it means for the Lord to be our inheritance. But we see in chapter 18 of Joshua, verse 7, the Levites, however, do not get a portion among you because the priestly service of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have already received their inheritance east of the Jordan. God had something special for the Levites. They, when it says the Lord was their inheritance, they were to serve in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. They were supposed to be instrumental in the worship of God. And so God did not want them to be occupied with inhabiting a territory because their focus was to be on him. And so he didn't want them being distracted in trying to cultivate the land, grow crops, establish a homestead. He wanted them to be focused on him and the worship. They were to present God to the people. And as they were among the people, they were supposed to represent God. And so their job was to honor God, to focus on him. That's what it means when it says he was their inheritance. They received an income from the people as they would contribute to the worship of God. It went to the Levites. And this is, again, very similar to what we have in ministry where the Lord talks about not muzzling the ox that treads on the grain. If someone is doing the service of God, they're to be taken care of. If someone is going to focus totally on service to God, say a missionary or something like that, you want them to go out and establish, well, it's very hard sometimes for them to have to earn a living in another country and then do the service of God as well. If you go to some countries, like in the UK, the dollar cuts in half. If you send $100 over to the UK, it's only worth 50 and so you send someone out there and you tell them, okay, you got to go and earn a living and then provide for yourself. And it can be a very difficult thing. And so God is taking care of those who are going to serve him and focus on him. And it's an important thing to recognize. But more importantly, I think it's a picture of what God desires for each of us. How he desires us to actually recognize that he is our inheritance that he is the one who lasts, that he is the one who provides, he is the one who will care for us. And just as he took care of the Levites, he will take care of us. 
In Deuteronomy 10, verse 8, it says, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant for, of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister and pronounce blessings in his name, and they still do today. That is why the Levites have no share in the inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God had told them. God had set them aside for special use, and again, I don't want to get too much in this because I'm going to on Sunday, but I think a lot of us can feel that we've been, I don't know, cut short. We, we got the, the short end of the deal. But some people, God has a special purpose for them, and we need to recognize that. And actually, going into chapter 14, we see that a little bit. Because chapter 14, we're going to talk about the, the nine and a half tribes that are given their inheritance. And it says, now these are the areas of the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan. This is on the other side, the west of the Jordan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. Their inheritance were assigned by lot to the nine and a half tribes as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, assigned by lot means they cast lots for them. And casting lots has to do kind of with, actually, it means rocks. It was like rolling dice. It was throwing stones to see who got what. Who's going to get this region? Well, let's cast lots. And this was done so that they could recognize what it was impartial. In other words, Joshua might have had, you know, some in-laws who were over in this tribe. And so, hey, Joshua, give us the side by the Mediterranean, you know, that beachfront property. Okay, you know, so my brother-in-law gets the beachfront, you know, and to the guy who I don't like so much, he gets the Rocky Hill area. <laughs> <laughs> and it was to prevent that from happening. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so God was going to be involved with it. He was saying, you're going to cast lots, but I'm going to be involved. I'll, I'll take care of the boundaries and set it up. You cast the lots, but I am in it. Now we see the casting of lots throughout scripture. We actually see the end of it in Acts chapter 1 when they cast lots to replace Judas who betrayed the Lord. And after Acts chapter 2, we never see it again, where the entrance of the Holy Spirit in the believer takes precedence over trusting the dice. Okay? And so this isn't, you know, well, I, should I go for the lottery then? Because, you know, it's kind of like casting lots. There was a pastor years ago who was talking against the lottery. It was in the newspaper. I think it was in Chicago. And he was just vehemently against it because it was causing a lot of harm to his people who were, you know, engaged in the lottery. And then his wife came up to him and, and sheepishly said, I'm, I'm sorry, but I played the lottery. And he was furious with her. How could you do this? You know, I mean, I've been talking against it. And she goes, I won a million dollars. And they interviewed him and he said, God works in mysterious ways. Yeah. But... This isn't license to play the lottery, okay? But God was in this and or orchestrating how these things were to play out and, and be given to the people. Um, but I wonder sometimes if we're happy with the lot that God has given us. And we feel, well, I'd, I'd like to be more like this. 
I mean, we can do it in so many areas. Women do it a lot in when they see, you know, how a woman looks. Oh, I wish I could look like her, you know, be tall, slim, anorexic looking, but still eat everything I want to, you know. <laughs> or maybe it's a job position. I wish I had this position, this job where I could make this much money and do this little work, you know. I mean, we, we have all these things that we desire. And we want that. And we can do it in ministry. There are people who I look at in ministry and I see, oh, you know, I like that guy's ministry. He's got a cool ministry. I mean, they're really on edge. They're artsy and they got a lot of people. And man, you know, a lot of famous people go to their church and he's like a cool pastor. Wish I could be like him. It's like, you live in the Inland Valley. Get used to it, you know. <laughs> no offense. I, I live here. We have to take the lot that we have and, and recognize that it's good, that God is in it, and make the most of wherever and whatever we have. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue a better job. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of yourself. It doesn't mean you shouldn't develop whatever area you are involved in. But be satisfied. Be content, Paul tells us. with Godliness with contentment, there's a lot to gain. And a lot of people aren't content and we need to recognize that you have to be content and as they casted lots they all got their region we're not going to talk about all those things again it would be embarrassing for me to read all the names and then I mean it's funny because then it curves westward from here and then it goes and most of us don't know what it means I don't know what it means I'd have to have a map and be looking at it and again I'm not going to do that but I want you to recognize that just because I'm skipping over this, it doesn't mean it's not important. It was very important to them. And there's probably a lot of significance that I am just not able to grasp. And when you get to heaven, you could say, so what's with these things in Joshua? Why are they there? And maybe God will give you some insight, but I'm not going to dare start speculating all kinds of things. Just I know it was important to them to understand what these things have. And they were given these lots. Now, verse 6 to 15 this is another great portion in chapter 14. Um, I, I, I'll touch on it a little bit, but again, in two weeks on Sunday, I'm going to touch on it more. But it says, Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunim, the, the Kenizzite, that's Barbie's friend, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years. Since that time, he said this to Moses. That means he's 85 years old. That, that's, get a grip of this and get a picture in your mind. While Israel moved about in the desert, so here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. 
Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites, remember who are those people? Those are the big guys. The Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jerapham, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephun and Kenizzite ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called this other name and this other name, who's greatest man among the Anakites. Again, he's a big dude of the Anakites. The land had rest from war. I just love that story. This guy, 85 years old, said, I want the hill. I'm going to take the hill where the giants live. God promised me, it's mine. Give it to me. And he said, you got it. And he blessed them. Boy, to have guys like Caleb. Man, people... It's funny, I remember Corrine's grandfather one day, he was, I don't know how old, he's probably in his 80s, and he was a frail guy. He was pretty small, pretty thin, you know, he walked real slow, but I remember him talking about when he used to be a young man in box, and he goes, yes, and he's sitting there, he's hitting his arm. I remember when I used to, you know, fight, and I could, boy, I had power in these arms, and, and you could tell in his mind, he still had that punch, you know? And I just see Caleb at 85 years old just saying, give me the land, you know, I'm 85 years old, just give it to me. And God did. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And Caleb did. Wholeheartedly he followed the Lord's Eighty, forty-five years I've been waiting for this land. Gosh, I remember when we were moving into this house. We were living with my my mom, and no offense, mom, but we wanted to get out, you know. We, we had, yeah, she wanted us out even more. We had three little children living with us at that time for, gosh, almost two years. And when finally the escrow came and the house came, I couldn't wait to get in this house. I was going to sneak in and I was going to start painting and we were ready to move in the house as soon as we can. Caleb waited for 45 years to get his home. Patience, steadfast, wholeheartedly following God. Boy, what, a, what an example that is for us. What a testimony that is. I mean, we, we read about Caleb in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And again, we're going to talk about that in a couple of Sundays. Um, I think we're going to stop there. Uh, didn't get to chapter 16, got to chapter chapter 15, but we'll take up from there later on and we'll try and get 15, maybe to 17 next time. I encourage you to go through and read these things. There are other little gems that I'm sure the Lord will speak to you as you go through and read these things. Um, I just think it could get tedious for me trying to read all the names and talk about all these regions where we can get lost if, if we don't have a map in front of us and sit there and dissect it. Um, I think the bottom line is to recognize that God is faithful and accomplishes his part. And if we will be faithful, we can accomplish it with him. There were the children who never fully occupied the land, and then there was Caleb who took all that he could get. And then we're going to see he even got more. 
he, not only did he get this region, but his name was numbered among the other tribe, and so he got another portion. You see, but he wanted more, and he got it. And the same is true for us. You want more of God, you'll get it. I think of e Elijah, and then Elijah, his master. And Elijah comes up and he says, I want a double portion of what you have. And he got it. He did twice the miracles that Elijah did. He wanted it. And what do you want from God? Do you want the hill country? If God gives you the lot, are you going to occupy it? And if you occupy it and are faithful, guess what? You can ask for more. And God is generous. He's faithful. If you're faithful in the small things, he'll give you bigger things. But let's first be faithful in these small things. Let's pray. Lord, I, I truly pray that we would be inspired by what we've read here. These men and their faithfulness to you. God, I, I truly pray that we would be aware of what you entrust to us. God, that there is an inheritance that we need to step into and occupy. There is a life that you have for us that we need to invest in. And God, I pray that we would have the right priority, that we would seek you first, and that our inheritance would be found in you. Lord, I do pray that you would, again, stir within us, Lord, a desire to live and follow after you wholeheartedly and fully. Thank you again for your faithfulness, your goodness, Lord. Might you remind us of these things. Might they just be ingrained in our hearts and our minds and leave with us as we go. And Lord, take what we've talked about here and multiply it in everyone here, Lord. Father, I pray that it would just be a seed in our hearts that would grow and flourish into the things you have for us. And I do ask it in Jesus' name.